1: Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply.
0: Welcome to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personality shaping the stories.
2: Thanks for joining me on Special Edition. I'm Paula Dagnan. This week, we're going to find out how some school scams have cost veterans their GI Bill benefits – and what they and others who may have been impacted by a predatory for-profit school scam can do. We're also going to find out about Falls Awareness Week. It starts this weekend. And what can you do to prevent them? Or what can you do if you have one? We'll let you know. Starting us off this week on Special Edition, it's 2022 and a case of polio was detected in New York State back in July. Should we be concerned? Carol Ferguson is the founder of the Pennsylvania Polio Survivors Network and is here to share her story. Carol is a polio survivor. Carol Ferguson, welcome. It's a delight to have you here. And we're going to be talking about polio survivors. And you are here because you are a polio survivor. Now, I know a lot of our listeners may be saying polio. That's been something that's been so long ago. So can you give us a little bit of your or a lot of bit of your background and how this came about? Sure. People have this vision that polio has gone and it's done. And while
3: polio was eradicated in the United States in 1979 but it has not been eradicated in the world. And that's uh, part of the work we do is to make Americans, people aware of that. But the other piece of what we do is we help people understand, yes, the disease has been eradicated in the U.S. and that's a gift. Wild polio has been eradicated in the U.S. and that's a gift. But polio doesn't just end when we get sick. We get sick. And we fight off the virus. We do the best we can. And we are left with whatever damage the virus did. For some, it's horrifying. For some, it's breathing. For some, it's death. For some, it's permanent paralysis, leg braces, crutches for life. For others, it's not so bad. For others, we recover and and we live and we go forward. Then 20 to 30 years later, something called post-polio syndrome comes into the lives of the vast majority of us. And what that is, is when we were little, we we got sick and the virus, somehow we ingested it and most of us will never know. And it went down into our bellies and up into our spinal cord. Where the virus did the damage can be different for all of us. That's why sometimes you'll see a survivor with a left leg brace. Sometimes you'll see a survivor with a completely paralyzed right arm. Sometimes you'll see a survivor that is only just stumbling a little bit. It can be all over the map in terms of how we appear. But what happened was, is when we got sick, the virus damaged the motor neurons in in our spinal cord. For some of us, it damaged a lot. For some of us, it didn't damage too many. Well, as we age, let's say a healthy person has 100 neurons. Okay, And as you age and you go down to 98 neurons, you're still functioning fine. You're still doing great. But for a paralytic polio survivor, they could be down to 50. And then natural aging starts and use of those muscles over their entire life. And with most polio survivors, it's fighting use of those muscles. The 50 now goes down to 40 and 30 and 20. Or in the case of a non paralytic survivor or an apparent survivor like me, I probably had like 60. So you couldn't see the weakness. So suddenly, as I've aged, now I'm down in the 40s and 50s. These are numbers that are not clinical, it's just for discussion purposes. Now, suddenly, for the first time in my life, I'm getting weak. And this is called post polio syndrome. We're weak, we're tired. And it comes on as a surprise and a shock to most of us. And that's what's so painful about it. It's just not easy, but it's for life. We tend to get extremely cold. i living in Pennsylvania. <laughs> that can be a problem. We tend to be extremely fatigued and weak. And what we have to do is completely change our lifestyle once again to slow the progression. The virus is gone. This is not a result of the virus coming back. This is not a result of the virus living in our body. The virus was long gone, 50, 60 years ago. This is a result of the damage that the virus did. Carol, when because, were you diagnosed? Well, there's, there's two pieces here. I got what was called the summer flu when I was two. I lived in Montgomery County. And yes, it was during the polio epidemics, but my parents believed I escaped and everything was fine. I recovered on my own in just a few days. I was a normal, healthy toddler. As I started to age, I will tell you my, my closest memory, I was like 10, 11. So more reaching more full growth. I developed a drop foot and my parents took me down to Temple Hospital and the doctor, I'll never forget it. He, I was sitting on a table and he looked at my leg and he said, that's a polio foot. It was the first time I ever heard the word. It was the first time I ever heard any description like that.
2: And what year was about this?
3: I'm going to say I was 12. So that would have been
2: 52, uh, 54 plus 12, 66. Even that is still before it was eradicated here in the U.S.
3: Yes, but the vaccine, I had had the vaccine after I got sick. But yes, it had not been eradicated yet. He went through my history with my mom. And he kept asking her questions, and my mother said she did have the summer grip when she was two. And he said, that's it. We now know that to be type 2 polio, a mild case of polio. So that was the first and last time I ever heard it. It was never spoken of again.
2: You mentioned the drop foot. Did that go away? No,
3: it never went away. I worked harder to walk, as my mother would say, walk right, heel-toe. But it actually it got worse. I was um, I was always a clumsy kid. It was always there for me. In my twenties, I can remember late twenties. I can remember the leg getting weaker, and my foot would spaz up. Um, but actually, I was thirty six when all this came to light for me. I was um, I was actually trying to play hockey with my son on the ice. And my foot had spazzed up when I put the skate on, which wasn't unusual for me. That was normal. So I blew it off and I fell, needed surgery, broke the elbow. And when they were putting me under, I'll never forget this. Uh, the anesthesiologist was on my left. The orthopedist was on my right. And they gave me some pre-op medication. And my left leg started flipping on the table like a fish on a dock. And the anesthesiologist said to me, Does that happen very often? And I looked at him and said, yeah, it's no big deal. And the next thing I know, I woke up in intensive care and was there for three days. As a reaction? I didn't know it at the time, but yes, it was a reaction to the anesthesia. A year later, I needed a second surgery. And the anesthesiologist called me the night before and he said, Carol, we need to get to the bottom of what happened. And I said, why? It's no big deal. I'm fine. And he said, no, we need, otherwise I'm going to cancel surgery tomorrow. And he spent an hour on the phone with me and actually got upset with me. He said, there's something you're not telling me. And I said, well, and I told him the story about my drop foot and the doctor at Temple Hospital. And he said, Carol, that's it. He said, you are a polio survivor. This was a reaction to anesthesia. And little did I know, I was one of the rare survivors that had a doctor in 1986 that knew about post syndrome. They adjusted the meds the next day, and I was fine. I had no reaction to the anesthesia, and he knew what to do. That began my journey of diagnosis, and part of what he told me was he came to see me in the hospital, and he said, don't ever leave that out of your history again. This is important. And he put it in my head and he taught me something very, very important. As I started to get weaker, I started on the journey of diagnosis. And that took 10 years for me to finally be diagnosed with post-polio syndrome because I had no record of paralytic polio. I had no record of any polio at all. I just had this story in my head. And I know now that that story really played a beneficial role for me as I went forward with trying to figure out, I I knew something was wrong. You know something's wrong. And doctors would look at me and say, something's wrong. But I had them say to me, a mild case of polio, this is not possible for it to do this much damage. A mild case of polio, you can't possibly be this weak. Now, I now had weakness in my upper left side of my body as well. So I was finally, quote, diagnosed. My left knee actually (laughs) turned around and went, I have a sense of humor. It went from one side to the other. And I saw a doc and he got me down to a hospital in Philadelphia. And she said, oh, yeah, this is an old polio. What bothered me was nobody ever wanted proof. How would they get proof? Well, I had an EMG and this wasn't polio. And it also actually showed and stated Basically, I chickened out and wouldn't let him complete it. It was agonizingly painful, and he did it in my neck. And the doctor down in in Philadelphia kept telling me, I don't do backs. I do legs. Your legs got a problem. but My back had a problem. I found a clinic in Englewood, New Jersey, Post-Polio Institute, that specialized in this. And I had joined a support group. I had heard about it. So I went up there. And my husband took me up there that day, and that's what changed my life. From the moment I walked in the door, I never heard the word victim. From the moment I walked in the door, the rehab eval was completely different. From the moment I walked in the door, the director, Richard Bruno, treated me like I mattered and explained to me that there's something wrong with you. It very well may be post polio syndrome, but we need to find out for sure. And they pushed me and directed me to get the help I needed to get to the right neurologist who was down actually at Penn. Another PhD, Muhlenberg University, Daniel Wilson, survivor, was renowned for his knowledge on this subject. He agreed with Dr. Bruno. He got me to this neurologist down at Penn who did the EMG that showed proof of an old polio. And what was great about that experience was my husband was with me. And there, it's a very painful process. This is not an easy process when there's something wrong. And the young man, the resident, had the the needles were in my leg. I was crying. My husband was ready to stop the whole thing. And the resident said, hold on. And he called Sean Bird, the senior um, neurologist in that group, to come in and see it. And Dr. Bird read it. And he said, hold on a minute. And he went out into the hallway and he brought in residents as a teaching moment to show them what an old polio actually looks like. I was thrilled because we finally had an answer. And I knew at that point I could go forward. I was also thrilled because I had had so many experiences at that point with people not understanding, people not knowing how to diagnose post-polio syndrome, that I knew that I had
2: played a part in others learning how to do this. I was thrilled. You mentioned going in and you saw it because there was a support group. When you got there, what was that like to find out that there were others who were experiencing and could share the same things that were happening to you? That changed my life. Um, Some of the best friends I have in my life today are from that group.
3: And I was the only one that had such minor symptoms. I was friends with people that couldn't walk at all. A woman spent five years in the hospital. whose entire
2: life was on double braces, double crutches. Her husband, also a survivor, was in a wheelchair. When they were growing up just like you were, you had dropped foot. Did they also go along the same lines that you had that no one really knew exactly where this had come from and, and what they were experiencing where it happened? Well, one piece of that is my friend
3: John, they, were, they lived downtown in Center City. It was a very hot day and he swam in a fountain in, in the city. And the next day the fountain was closed and he got sick the next day. He knew where he got it from swimming in the fountain. But most children
2: didn't know how they ingested it. And were these also children that had had the vaccine? No, the vaccine wasn't out yet when I got sick.
3: The vaccine wasn't out yet when the majority of us got sick. By the time I saw the doctor in Philadelphia, the vaccine was out. But when I got
2: sick, the vaccine was not out. So you didn't have any kind of a shot or anything before this happened? No. No, I had the, I was vaccinated after I got sick. I want to make sure that we get that out because it's not over yet, and no. that's one of the reasons why I wanted to speak with you today. Because it wasn't that long ago that in we're in Pennsylvania, but in New York State, there have been cases of polio being reported, and most people think what's polio? It doesn't exist anymore. So now here you are telling your story, and yet it's still here. The
3: reality that this has happened in the U.S. in 2022 is deeply personal and heartbreaking. It is absolutely unnecessary. The salt vaccine was approved in 1955, and it's a very, very effective vaccine. It gets all types of 1, 2, and 3 polio. The only vaccine to be given in the United States since 2000 is that vaccine. The very idea that the child in the United States gets polio, or in this case in New York, a young man of 20 years old got polio, my heart is breaking because it's absolutely unnecessary. It came from overseas, and it came to an under-vaccinated community in New York. And one, there is one reported case of a paralyzed young man who was never vaccinated. But the reality is and we celebrate the director of public health in the state of New York for bringing the attention is that there are there is a reality that there are hundreds and hundreds of inapparent or mild cases of polio. They have found it in the sewage of four counties in New York. Actually I spoke to someone from the New York Department of Health last week and she said you guys in Pennsylvania it's Right over the border. It's right over. It's just an hour away. And in Rotary, we often say polio. It's only a plane ride away. Not anymore.
2: And that's one of the other things I would like to bring into the discussion because I've spoke to many people from Rotary International and they have talked about going to other countries where they are involved with giving and bringing the polio vaccine. And You are a part of that as well. Is it your understanding that so many people just think that that's the only place that it is, is where they're going to have to give this? But right here in our own backyard, it's not necessary.
3: I would say 90 percent of the people I meet will tell you, what's the big deal? We're in the U.S. They often say it's been eradicated. No, it hasn't. There are 15 cases in Pakistan, as we speak today, of wild polio. Now, what's in New York is a circulating vaccine-derived polio type 2. That's different. That's what's so heartbreaking about this, because it's 100% preventable in the U.S. The reason that has happened is in the U.S., like I said, we give the injectable vaccine. But in order to eradicate this disease all over the world, we have to use the oral polio vaccine for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's an excellent vaccine. Children take it, it goes down into their bellies, up into their brain stems, and it protects them from the polio virus. Unfortunately, this has a tiny, tiny tidbit of the live virus in it, and that has been capable of mutating, and it has mutated. And as a result, the Global Polio Eradication Initiative issued OPV2, oral polio vaccine type 2, a year and a half ago in the middle of COVID. They started giving this new vaccine, but it hasn't been enough. So there hasn't been enough time. COVID slowed things down. Children weren't vaccinated. So this this vaccine that children are able to shed and they were at, they are able to spread after they get it
2: has come into the U.S., and that's how this happened. And our children, especially when they're certain ages and especially when they're going to school, is that still in the realm of you have to get these shots as you grow up at that age? The polio vaccine, our
3: children get four doses. We still give our children four doses of the polio vaccine. Isn't that two months, nine months, I believe a year to 14 months. And then a booster at four to five. My granddaughter just had her five-year-old booster.
2: Polio is a formidable opponent. But we have full protection here in the U.S. with the injectable vaccine. And what about those of us who are at this point in our lives? Are we looking at getting boosters now because this is coming back? What have you heard on that?
3: The latest I've heard on this is healthcare professionals that are near New York, northern New Jersey, or anywhere where they're treating those who may have, in fact, ingested this
2: virus that has come to New York, should have a booster, yes. And you can now go to your primary care physician and request that? Or is that just in New York? Has it crossed over into the border in Pennsylvania yet, or any other areas? They have asked healthcare professionals in northern New Jersey to be boosted for this virus. So what can we do? I know you have a website that I would like you to give a little bit of information about for our listeners so that they can find out more there. And are there any other things that we can do we should know?
3: We need to be very, very aware that you're talking to someone who believes in vaccines for obvious reasons. And we're all COVID out, right? We're all worn out from all that. As a mother, as a grandmother, I can understand a young parent questioning the COVID vaccine for their four or five-year-old, but the polio vaccine is 65 years old. Were there initial issues? Yes. In 1955 and 56 with the polio vaccine, absolutely. That's over. It's been done. This is an effective vaccine. My ability to understand why any parent in the United States would not give their child the polio vaccine is very
2: painful and deeply personal and very confusing. So this young man from New York, who was 20 years old, did not have the vaccine. He was unvaccinated and his life has changed forever. A lot of people will say, well, he's one in a a gazillion that that would happen to.
3: He's one in a gazillion unless you're in unless you're unvaccinated, in an area where the virus comes in and it's being spread through the sewage. And then it's no longer a gazillion. Yeah, they've just started testing the water in the U.S., and the sewage in the U.S. The CDC has the most sophisticated polio lab in the world. The CDC is part of the Global Polio Eradication Initiative. They were called in to New York State this year because it's here. And I think what we can do, Paula, I love you doing this episode, because what we can do is help people understand it's here. There's no one to blame. It's here. But there's absolutely nothing to fear if your child has had the polio vaccine in the United
2: States. There's absolutely nothing to fear. It is a safe and effective vaccine. Carol, if you would, tell us about your website. Our website, we
3: launched it eight years ago. It the P.A. Polio Survivors Network, papolionetwork.org. I I had reached a great point in my journey. I was properly diagnosed. I was stabilizing. I no longer hated my leg brace and cane, and I even used the power chair when I had to. But I knew the journey that I was on for a long, complex diagnosis here in Pennsylvania, outside of Philadelphia, and I wanted to serve others. So, we got together a group, family, friends, survivors, and we launched this network. We had no idea that eight years later we would be all over the US and abroad. And we passionately support the work of the Rotary Foundation and their work to save children from this terrible disease and eradicate this disease. Because of their work, polio will be eradicated because of their sheer will and determination. The Rotary Foundation, Gates Foundation, CDC, World Health, it's going to happen. But what we do is we talk honestly about this virus. We talk honestly about this is what happens. Some of us get a mild case of this virus and we're fine. Some of us get a mild case of this virus and find ourselves at 50 years old suddenly in leg braces and crutches. And really confusing. Post-polio syndrome has a lot of psychological effects along with physical effects. It's like, what's happened to me? How could this happen? And then there's the survivors, the vast majority, who had serious paralytic polio that are now getting sicker. Sicker in the sense they're physically weaker, they're tired, they're worn out, and memories are emerging. Memories of hospitalizations. I spoke to a woman this week that she's having flashbacks of an iron lung and did not know that she was in one. And her sister told her that there was, in fact, an old photograph of her in an iron lung. COVID's brought a lot of that back for a lot of survivors. And what we do is we bring forward professionals through our
2: work, our monthly newsletters, and on our website to help survivors know that they're not alone. And what you're talking about is now the injectable vaccine vaccine that is available here in the United States.
3: And has been since 2000. Well, the vaccine's been available in the US since
2: 1955, but it's been the only vaccine given in the United States for 22 years. So now is the time to start asking questions. Now is the time for do a little bit of research and find out that it's here. It's here.
3: You know, a couple of weeks ago, I was in Scranton at the Rail Riders game and was humbled to represent the Rotary International at that game. And out on the field, they did an interview. And I was grateful to have my two grandchildren on either side of me. And they asked me to give a a message about the reality. And suddenly, I had two young children, a five-year-old and an eight-year-old, on either side of me. And I said, these children and their parents have nothing to fear. Polio is less than an hour away. But these children and my son and his wife have nothing to fear because they've been fully vaccinated. In our presentation, we have a term. We we show the CDC definition of polio. And then we say, but we have another rather unscientific
2: term to describe it. It's a lousy disease. Polio stinks. Carol, thank you for sharing your story. You were gracious enough to do that with us. So I'm going to give you the last word. What do you want to leave with our listeners today?
3: Be aware, pay attention. If you're from the polio generation, talk about it. If you're a young parent, think about it. Realize
2: that it is no longer a plain ride away. Thanks once again to Carol Ferguson for sharing her story of being a polio survivor. Rotary International has long been working to eradicate polio around the world. In future episodes of Special Edition, we'll be talking with Rotary to find out more about that. Don't go away. Next on Special Edition, we're starting Falls Awareness Week. How to prevent them and what to do if you have one. Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced It can happen at any time and cause a lot of problems. Dawn Webster, Advanced Practice Clinician Director with MedExpress, has tips on how to prevent them and what to do if we have one. So it's actually Fall Prevention Awareness Week. Sounds like it's going to be a good one, so I'll turn it over to you. What can you tell us? So
1: one of the most important things is actually preventing falls. In order to prevent falls, there's some basic things you can do. And the first one is to keep yourself moving and active. So by increasing your strength and balance, doing balance and strength exercises every day, it's going to keep your body able to move and pretty much get around without the instability that you worry about when you're not moving. So the more active you are, the better you are. Another thing you can do to prevent falls is to check your vision every year. So by seeing your eye doctor, getting your glasses or contact lenses updated if needed, it's really going to help also. But the other thing that you need to worry about when it comes to glasses are the bifocals or progressive lenses, because those can actually cause a little bit of an issue with depth perception and at first especially cause people to be more likely to trip or fall. Finally, you also want to talk to your doctor. There are certain medications that can actually cause dizziness or sleepiness, which would also increase your risk of falling.
2: And you mentioned being active. So I'm guessing that even if we're going to be active, we still have to be aware that some of the things we do could cause us to go off balance. For example, we might be doing some exercises and we have to pay attention to that, too. Absolutely.
1: So if you are going to start an exercise program, obviously you want to talk to your doctor first. And then if you do know that you have a very weak core, for example... You're going to want to start with maybe some chair exercises. So seated in a chair, make sure you're somewhere that you do have something to hold on to when you get up to stand. And then as you progress, you can move to, to the more advanced exercises. But you always want to start slow and really kind of be aware of how you're feeling as you're doing the move.
2: The other thing, too, is there are suggestions, and I'm sure you have a whole list of them, that there are things, and sometimes we think of this more for older people, but I think for everybody, there are things around the house that we can do to keep us, hopefully, from falling. Right. So one of the first things you need to look at are railings on your
1: stairs. So people don't realize how unsteady they are, especially when it comes to to stairs and steps. So you want to look at your railings. Are they sturdy? Are they there? Some people, you know, the railing breaks and they don't replace it. And then the next most important place to look is in the bathroom. So the bathtub, the shower, those floors are slippery. So you really want to make sure you have something stable that you can hold on to getting in and out of the
2: bath or shower and even on and off of the toilet. And along those lines, too, a lot of people think, well, Dawn, you're right. It's slippy in there. I'm going to put down a throw rug. Sure. And and that can help
1: with absorbing water and making it not wet. But it can also get bunched up or even just cause a fall hazard in itself.
2: Also, and I hate to say this, but our beloved pets can even cause a fall.
1: Yes, that's one of the most common reasons people come in with injuries from falling. Their cat or their dog, you know, they love to be by us. They love to follow us. And you turn around and there they are and you fall right over top of them. So, yeah, they're absolutely a fall hazard.
2: I think you mentioned medications. Are there things that people should look out for in that area or, you know, alert, alert their doctor to if they start having what kind of symptoms? Yeah, absolutely. So every time you get a medication, you should look at the paperwork that comes with it. So many medications
1: can cause dizziness, can cause um, issues with being sleepy when you take it. And sometimes these are temporary, but sometimes they're not. So you really want to look at these side effect profiles. And if there is something that, you know, you're really having a strong effect, you know, really causing you to be dizzy... Then there's other options. You can switch to a different medication and hopefully not have that side effect. So absolutely talk to your doctor, especially if you do notice that one of your medications seems to make you dizzy or sleepy.
2: And what happens when we venture outside our home? I'm sure there are plenty of things out there that can really trip us up.
1: <laughs> there there definitely are
2: so one of the things you have to kind of keep in mind
1: are when you go outside what shoes are you wearing so especially in the summer you know we can wear sandals or flip-flops they're they're very smooth on the bottom not a lot of tread so that in itself if it's wet outside they're not going to help you at all and then you also have to look at the surface you're walking on so obviously we're not into the snow yet thank goodness and the ice but even in the summer you know the curbs they can be uneven the sidewalks can have cracks or bumps or there could even be you know litter on the sidewalk that you could trip over so you really have to be aware of your surroundings watch where you're walking and try to wear shoes that are going to give you some help in the tread department also
2: and what happens if we feel ourselves falling? Is there something that we can do or not do? Sure. So when you, when
1: you do fall, if you fall, the most important thing to do is not get up right away. So when you fall, the adrenaline kicks in, you get scared. So the first thing you really want to do is you want to take a couple of deep breaths and try to relax. So this is going to kind of help Settle everything down so that you can really assess yourself and see what is hurting, what did I injure, am I injured. Um, After you kind of take a couple deep breaths and do a a quick, you know, check, before you get up, if there is an area of your body that seems to be hurt, you want to be very gentle. So if you think you hurt your arm you know, try to wiggle your fingers, try to see, does it hurt in my elbow? Does it hurt in my wrist? And then if you feel like you can try to get up, you don't want to just stand right up because that can cause you to either fall again or get lightheaded. So the first thing you want to do from falling is kind of roll over onto your side, give yourself a good 30 seconds to a minute, see what happened with the pain. Did it worsen? Did it get better? Did it not change at all? And then if you still feel like you can stand up, then you want to get onto all fours in a crawling position, because each one of these steps is going to help increase your blood pressure a little bit without being too fast, because when you stand up quickly, it's going to drop can make you um, dizzy and fall again. So then after you're on all fours, you can slowly stand up. Best case scenario, there's something around you that you can kind of lean on a table, a chair. If not, then you you just want to be extra careful, extra cautious and get up slow. And if you are able to stand up and walk, then obviously you you should be okay. But you still want to get checked. If if you know, if you hit your head you may not even realize it, especially if you just kinda wake up. So if you hit your head hard enough and you lose consciousness, then even if you wake up and feel fine, you you still need to get checked out because that's never something that we want to just ignore or brush under the rug.
2: Should we try to break a fall? And if we do, is there a safe way to do that? So there really isn't a safe
1: way to do it. Um, I would say that, you know, most people instinctively try to protect their face when they fall. So they kind of put their arms in front of their face and that's fine. Um, It certainly isn't the best thing, but falling in, in itself isn't a great thing. So there's really no safe way to try to break your fall to be honest, but if if at all possible, if you know, for example, you're outside and you're on the sidewalk and you know, there's either pavement in front of you or grass beside you, obviously it would be safer to try to land in the grass than on the pavement. But a lot of times
2: falls happen so quick you don't even have time to think about that. So I guess putting our hand down if we're going down back end first is also not a good idea. Well, it's, again, it's kind of an instinct. So most people do it without even
1: thinking. And unfortunately, that is one of the ways people break their, their wrists or their hands. We call it a fall on an outstretched hand. And we call it that. And it has its own name because it is so common. So, I mean, it's one of those things that people do just instinctively. Don, what have we left out? Anything? I would say... Really, we, we kind of hit all the big things. Obviously, snow and ice is a whole nother topic that we can talk about when we get closer to that time. But just kind of keep in mind that, you know, fall prevention is most important. Try to wear the shoes that you need to wear for your activities. Look around your house. Look for obstacles or, or pets or toys or anything on the stairs that could cause falls. And if you do fall, just be very careful getting up and take your time
2: do it slowly, and then get checked if you need to. Thanks once again to Dawn Webster, Advanced Practice Clinician Director with MedExpress on tips on how to prevent falls and what to do if you have one. Coming up next on Special Edition, some school scams have cost veterans their GI Bill benefits. If you've been impacted by a predatory for-profit school scam, whether you're a veteran or not, we'll have some advice on Special Edition. The scams are out there in every shape and size. Next on Special Edition, we're going to find out about some school scams that have cost veterans their GI Bill benefits. Della Justice, Vice President of Legal Affairs for Veterans Education Success, is joining us with advice for veterans and others who may have been impacted by a predatory for-profit school scam. Della, let's get started by having you first explain what's going on here and how can it happen that student veterans are getting scammed? Thank you so much for that question.
4: Um, so so what's happened here is the Department of Education, you know, made an announcement uh, that it is going to cancel the federal student loans uh, for students who attended ITT from 2005 into 2016. So to understand what's happened there, uh, the Department of Education has been engaged in an investigation uh, fueled by student uh, complaints, including veterans complaints, about uh, the uh, misrepresentations that ITT was making to students to get them to choose that school. Lots of times these students are first time uh, going to college uh, in their family, and they were looking to get a good job. And ITT marketed itself as a school that would lead to a good job. And uh, the Department of Education's investigation uh, looked into it and uh, looked at the evidence that was provided, including evidence from our organization, Veterans Education Success, and found that there had been widespread uh, misrepresentations and falsehoods uh, provided by ITT to students, including that uh, they uh, greatly inflated the job placement uh, rates for the students. They uh, uh, overstated how much students would make if they graduated and got the job. They also misrepresented uh, the transferability of the credits for students. So you think about it from a student's perspective when you're choosing a school, particularly if you're a first time person you know going to school in your family, um, you're going to be looking at uh, what are the chances that I'm going to be able to get a job? That's something that really matters when you choose an ITT school, right? And so they they lied and told students, uh, you know, gave them uh, many much inflated numbers about their likelihood of getting a job and how much it would pay. And then you also think, well, what if I get in there and I don't like it? Well, then they're assured that their credits would transfer when, in fact, ITT knew that their credits rarely transferred. So it's been a, it's a tremendous um, uh, decision by the Department of Ed based on the evidence that the students were so defrauded that they are going to cancel their federal student loans uh, for any students enrolled from 2005 to 2016. But the real tragedy here, right, and it, it's a is that the veterans who use their GI Bill benefits uh, are not going to be able to get their GI Bill back uh, because the law doesn't allow it. Uh, the law does not allow for a veteran who has uh, uh, been defrauded by a school like this to get their GI Bill benefits back. So Congress really needs to change that so that you don't have a situation where it's clear from the evidence that the school engaged in such widespread misconduct that it led to the Department of Education uh, canceling their federal student loans. But you've got veterans who use their hard-earned benefits right, uh, to go to this school who were uh, cheated tricked into what they would get when they got there um, and now are unable to get their GI Bill benefits back. So they've lost those benefits uh, to a school that did not deliver what they promised.
2: Oh, Della, so many questions now. And first, for our listeners, it's not just the veterans in this case, although you and your organization are focused on veterans, but it was not just veterans who were affected in this.
4: Oh, that's correct. Yes, this is, it was over 200,000 students, including veterans, but not just veterans. Um, And it was, uh, I think the Department of Education determined it was across the country and it was at every campus. It was so pervasive um, that they even determined that the misrepresentations relating to the, uh, the the potential for job placement after graduation, making those misrepresentations was a part of the recruitment plan for ITT.
2: And now what? You have veterans who are, and other students as well, but again, from the Veterans Education Success, your group, you have veterans who are, as you mentioned, the GI Bill is not going to be able to be repaid to them. And now you are still involved in all of this. I mean, where do they turn? Right. Thank you. So for Veterans Education
4: Success, I'll give you a little background. We are a nonprofit organization that works on a bipartisan basis to protect uh, the integrity and promise of the GI Bill uh, benefits, but also other federal education benefit programs. And um, what we do is we do research for that and we advocate. And then we also, though, provide free legal services to veterans and military connected students who have questions about their education benefits. So so the good news is for the uh, ITT students who attended from 2005 to 2016, uh, the Department of Education has determined they're just canceling those loans. There's nothing at this point, there's no application that those students need to make according to the Department of Education. But students may still have questions um, if they attended ITT or if they attended an, uh, any other school where they feel like they were um, mistreated, uh, provided false information, uh, then they uh, then they can reach out to us to ask questions about what are their rights and what can they uh, what might they be able to do in, under those circumstances. But they can also, uh, you know. Reach out to their congressperson and ask that the veterans can and ask that the law be changed so that they can get their GI Bill benefits back. So they can contact us at, at vetsedsuccess dot org, uh, and that's our, If they if they go on our website, they'll find lots of information there. But they can also email us at health at org. Uh, but you're right. I mean, this is this has been a long a long running problem. Uh, it has taken a while to get this relief that they deserve, and of course, you know it is a it is a pervasive issue um, uh, in this area. I don't know uh, if you're aware that for a long time veterans have been targeted uh, by uh, schools that felt that they uh, wanted to be able to access their GI Bill benefits under the 9010 loophole. Um, uh, under that law, what it was allowed was that uh, a school had to demonstrate that uh, it was marketable, right, that there was some sort of market check on it. So it had to demonstrate that at least 10% of its revenue came from something other than Title IV funds. Well, GI Bill benefits and other uh, other type of military education assistance doesn't count in that Title IV funds, right? So then what that allowed them to do was they would oftentimes target the veterans uh, with their false uh, false information and um, exaggerated opportunities after graduation for job placement and getting good paying jobs. They would target them because you often hear it explained as for every veteran they were able to enroll, they can enroll nine students who solely pay for their education
2: with uh, the title four benefits, including federal student loans. What can we use as advice? Because again, all these schools seem like they are on the up and up, but as you said, there are loopholes out there. So before I have to let you go, what advice would you give? Thank you. So so the good news is uh, there has been work. We worked with Congress, Veterans Education Success
4: worked with Congress, provided information to get the 9 loophole uh, closed, and there are new regs being proposed. So that's the kind of thing that you can do if you advocate. So one of the things we would ask them to do, though, is to uh review the information that's provided. There's the, the Department of Education provides the college scorecard. It'll tell you about the schools before you enroll. There's the GI Bill comparison tool that'll give you information about the schools. And you can also, like I said, contact us. Uh, we can help uh, students navigate that process. Uh, and again, uh, to get changes, it really helps to group to uh, band together and uh, and go to Congress and ask them to change the law, which is what really needs to happen here for these veterans uh, to get what they deserve, which is to get their GI Bill benefits back after having been defrauded by ITT.
2: And I am looking at the Veterans Education Success website, and there is great information on here. Everything from policy advocacy to legal advocacy to help for whistleblowers. And we could go on, Della, I'm afraid, because there's a lot of lot more questions. So just for our listeners, could you give us once again how they can get in touch with you and if there's anything else that they need to do as far as red flags are concerned, what they would need to look for?
4: They can contact us by sending an email at to help at vetsedsuccess.org. That's V-E-T-S-E-D-S-U-C-C-E-S-S dot org. And the things they need to look for, they should be wary of any overpromises, inflated opportunities. But their best information that they can get is to look at the Department of Education's college scorecard in the GI Bill Comparison Tool, and then they can contact us at health at vets ed uh, if you feel like uh, you need information regarding uh, how to choose a school, but also if you think that you have been uh, mistreated or given false information by your school, you can contact us so that we can talk with you about what some of your options are.
2: Della, thank you so much for bringing that to the forefront. I'm sure there are many people who are going to be looking for more information on that. So thank you for being here and sharing that with us today. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories.